Hi guys, it's Ange. Today, again, we are going to look at the kings and queens. And we are going to research, or not research, we're going to look at the story of the Mayerling tragedy. Some of you who don't know me or know what I do, I kind of like to go on a historical journey. At points, I may pause what I'm doing and I will research a fact and try to come back to you with it. It's a little historical journeys that I like to go on and I like to take you along with me. Yesterday we started to look at the kings and queens of Europe. We wanted to look at the Mayerling tragedy, but we ran out of time. Today we're going to do that. If we have time to get into another story, we will. But again, I don't know because I sidetrack a lot and I like to be as thorough as I can. With historians, there's one person who sees it this way and another person who interprets it that way. There's so many different interpretations of something. You really have to see a lot of the sides to get a full understanding of what has actually happened in any incident in history. Also, history wasn't written by the losers of the war, right? History was written by the winners, so we have to be careful at what we're reading because we're really we're only seeing one side of the story. And that's why I like to go backwards and see what another historian might have to say. And I hope that's acceptable to you all. That's just the way I like to do things. That's a little about me. I hope you enjoy this. And again, if we have time, we will look at another historical figure. Kings and Queens, A Chronicle of History's Most Interesting Monarchies by Brenda Ralph Lewis. Okay, again, before we go any further, I want to um, make a point about this particular book. This book isn't for the faint of heart. It's very dark at times, which I was unaware of. Yesterday, when I opened the book for the first time, I had only glanced through and saw one of the stories that I wanted to look at. And I really didn't read too much into it, and I thought, I'll wait and I'll go through it with everyone together. We looked into Elizabeth Bathory first. It was extremely dark. Some of the wording was harsh, but when you mix it with the story, it was very harsh. Yeah, so it takes a strong stomach, and if you can't, if that's too much for you, then I suggest that you like look at some of my other stuff. I have lots of books we are going through, other short histories that aren't so disturbing, but this one might be disturbing, and I want to be very clear. If it's, it, it, This is a trigger warning. There, that's how you've said it. Okay, so here we are. The Maryland Tragedy. What I like about this book is the artwork. There is a beautiful painting of Crown Prince Rudolph. He was a liberal and destined to inherit an absolute monarchy that was the antithesis of his beliefs. Above there's a photograph of Baroness Maria Vetsera. She was a starry-eyed girl and was completely entranced by a glamorous crown prince into a fatal romance. Early on the morning of the 30th of January, 1889, Crown Prince Rudolf of Austria-Hungary was found dead, 
together with his young mistress, Baroness Maria Vetsera, in the royal hunting lodge of Meyerling, ten miles from Vienna. Both had been shot. Maria had apparently died first and lay on the bed in the crown prince's bedroom, her body covered with roses. Having killed her, it seems, Rudolph had shot himself through the head, shattering his skull. Reaction to the mailing deaths was cataclysmic. The crown prince's father, Emperor Franz Joseph, collapsed when he heard the news. His mother, Empress Elizabeth, was inconsolable. Grieving crowds thronging the streets of Vienna went so far out of police control that the army had to be called in. One person was killed and several more injured before calm was restored. What remained after that was a mystery, one that no one seemed able to solve. Why had a handsome, popular prince, heir to one of Europe's most powerful thrones, a man who had charm, intelligence, good looks, and talents on his side, unexpectedly taken his own life at 30 years of age. Rudolph, however, was not at all the dazzling Prince Charming he appeared to be, the only son of Franz Joseph and Elizabeth. He had inherited too much of his mother's melancholic nature and too little of his own father's solidity. And to those frustrating circumstances, a miserable marriage and a sense of isolation and hopelessness. And the tragic prince had all the makings of a man who to the outside world appeared to have everything, but in his own mind, he had nothing. Progressive ideas. There was, for a start, no scope in the exalted royal environment for his advanced and progressive ideas. A liberal-minded prince, more suited to be a constitutional monarch, Rudolf had a head full of exciting ideals about improving the lot of ordinary people and ruling by benign example. His ideas found some expression, though no action in his friendship with Moritz Zeps, a journalist who had edited a radical newspaper, the Vienna Morgan Post, or Morning Post. Rudolph contributed several articles to the Morgan Post anonymously. Zeps naturally enough regarded the crown prince as a great quote-unquote catch for the liberal cause. So did a maverick within the royal family, Rudolph's cousin, Archduke John Salvatore of Tuscany. John Salvatore's radical opinions went way beyond Rudolph's, to the point where he believed it valid for a man to strip himself of his titles, cast aside his privileges, and live a commoner's life with a wife of his own free choice. On this page, there is a photograph of young Prince Rudolph. He looks to be about, I want to say maybe 18 to 20. Underneath is written, on the face of it, the handsome, charming crown prince Rudolph seemed the ideal prince 
and a worthy heir to the prestigious Austro-Hungarian throne, Hungarian throne. And then there's another photograph on the right of, it's a painting, I'm sorry, of the Emperor Joseph, Franz Joseph I of Austria-Hungary had absolute power over his subjects and expected his heir, Rudolf, to continue in his way. There is a painting on this page of Crown Princess Stephanie of Belgium, daughter of the Belgian King Leopold II. She married the Crown Prince Rudolf in 1881 after he bowed to family pressure to do his duty and take a wife. She is stunningly beautiful, and in this painting she's wearing like a beautiful turret ball gown. She's beautiful. We don't know anything about her, so let's go back and read. So this, in fact, is precisely what John Salvatore did after Rudolph's death. By 1888, he had already found the wife he wanted, a middle-class girl called Millie Stubble, who would never be acceptable to the royal family had he tried to make her an archduchess. John Salvatore also proved bold enough to openly criticize the emperor. His government and the Austrian army, for which Franz Joseph had him banned from court, banishment was served to break up the close friendship between Rudolf and John Salvatore, who, not surprisingly, was considered a disruptive influence on the young prince. Rudolf, nevertheless, contrived to see his cousin in secret and discuss with him the ideas of the major liberal thinkers of the day. These encounters were a kind of sub-life in which Rudolf could give some rein to his deeply held political beliefs. All the same, it saddened him that they had to be clandestine, and also that they possessed of necessity an element of self-interest. For the Archduke asked for Maurice Sepps, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne could not be merely a fellow spirit, but a means to their own reforming ends. In position of control, John Salvatore certainly looked forward to a major role in affairs, as when Rudolf eventually became emperor and Zepps had no hope of making radicalism reality without the support of a man in high places. Even so, as would-be liberals remarking a world of despots and democratic image. Rudolf, John Salvatore, and Zepps all faced a monumental obstacle. The throne, which Rudolf stood to inherit, was ancient, well-founded, and extremely powerful. Led by Franz Joseph, royal rule in Austria-Hungary was the hands of men, repossessive temperament. Their notion of government was the brutal suppression of all the unrest and control by force and fear. To such men, liberals were a cancerous growth, eating away at absolute royal authority. The emperor was nevertheless very conscious of how far apart he and Rudolf were, and, for the sake of the family's peace, the two of them never discussed politics. Even so, Franz Joseph believed that he could control his recalcitrant heir. He denied Rudolf a part in affairs of state, on the premise 
that where he had no knowledge, he had no influence. He also sought to shackle Rudolf domestically by finding him a suitable wife. In the case of the charmless but respectable princess Stephanie, daughter of King Leopold II of Belgium, the wedding took place in 1881. The fact that the marriage soon proved unhappy was not of great concern. A married crown prince who dabbled in superficial affairs on the side, as he was almost expected to do, was far less susceptible to outside influences than an unwed heir able to play the field. Without a wife, Rudolph would also have fitted less conveniently into the social requirements of the imperial court, which was sniff with protocol, insistent on strict procedure and marked by the slavish deference so dear to the arrogant hearts of Central European monarchs. Anyone unable to prove a noble genealogy going back at least four generations was not permitted to attend at court, which largely accounted for its stuffy atmosphere. The haughty Princess Stephanie was in fact far better suited to such an environment than her husband. Rudolph found it choking, but he performed well enough and when in court circles could not be faulted on manners or protocol. The emperor naturally looked to his son to provide more male heirs to the imperial throne, and, although the first child of Rudolph and Stephanie, born in 1883, was a daughter, it was expected that sons would follow, and so cement the power of the Habsburg royal family. In the event, no son was ever born, for it was doubtful that marital relations between the crown prince and his wife were very frequent. After 1883, if, that is, they existed at all. This was hardly surprising when Stephanie was irascible, moody, jealous, and disruptive, and pursued her husband with perpetual demands. There is a photograph on the right-hand side. It says that if Stephanie and Rudolph were incompatible, the haughty, moody, and demanding Stephanie could neither understand nor deal with Rudolph's melancholic nature. It's interesting because in this photograph, she looks... In the painting, she just looks like a beautiful princess. Sweet, kind. But in the photograph, she looks stiff and rigid. and Her face is very sharp. If you've ever watched the movie The Wizard of Oz, you've seen the woman on the bike trying to get Toto into her basket and take Toto away from Dorothy. She looks like a younger version of that woman, and I am not exaggerating. She's a very stiff and rigid. That's the best way to explain it. And she's arm in arm with Prince Rudolph, and he's kind of looking at the camera as if he's being pulled, and he looks shocked, almost, as if the camera caught him off guard, and he's trying to gather himself quickly. It's the best way to explain it. Yeah. So you should look up pictures of Rudolph and Stephanie so you can see what I'm talking about. 
The first child of Rudolph and Stephanie was born in 1883, was a daughter. It was expected that sons would follow and so cement the power of the Habsburg royal family. Stephanie graded particularly during Rudolph's periodic moods of depression, which were the fruit of his frustrations and his convictions that he was wasting himself in a hollow world that had no future, and certainly no liberal future. Like his mother Elizabeth, he was plagued by a deep streak of melancholy, and when the mood was on him, a fearful sense of self-loathing. Stephanie was far too dense and unimaginative. To understand what the problem was, and the rift occasioned by Rudolph's mood and his bad temper, soon became permanent cracks in the facade. The diligent gossips of Vienna quickly realized that the royal pair were chronically ill-suited and saw clear evidence of the mismatch in Rudolph's frequent absences from the Austrian capital. They were far more frequent than his ceremonial duties or his obligations as an army officer required. And the rumor mongers were certain that while Rudolph may not have a girl in every port, his amours were plentiful in the provinces. Unfortunately, Stephanie was just as certain and, unlike many royal wives at the time, did not have the tact to turn a blind eye to her, to her husband's dalliances. She failed to realize, too, how little she had to worry about at this stage, for Rudolph's liaisons were usually short-lived and were more in the nature of brief snatches at oblivion than any quest for a serious relationship. This led to create ructions at court at the autumn of 1888, when she made a public scene outside the house in Vienna, where her husband was visiting the pretty Polish Countess Shukura. The Countess was little more than the latest fashionable flirt. She had scores of admirers, but Stephanie's action spilled a lot of beans. It was understood that in royal circles, whatever went on behind the scenes, an impeccable front had to be maintained. However, hypocritical this attitude. Stephanie had shattered that front and revealed a scandal. In the ethos of the time, this made her more culpable than her errant husband. The infuriated Franz Joseph attended to keep the scandal under wraps, but soon it left the bounds of court circles and became common talk in Vienna and beyond. A public display of unity was urgently required. This took place shortly afterwards when Rudolph and Stephanie, both on the very best behavior, attended a gala ball. The entire aristocracy of Vienna was there to see the royal face restored and the occasion richly dressed. Lavishly victualed was the sort of dazzling affair in the Viennese accepted as a usual part of the social scene. This was, after all, waltz time Vienna, a city of legendary gaiety with the lilting music of the Strauss family providing in theme tunes. When his mood switched away from depression and self-torture, Rudolph was very much part of this pleasure-loving world. 
His other sunnier side was gregarious. He greatly enjoyed the theater, social gatherings, salons, race meetings, concerts, or riding in the park in the Prater. The leisure complex of Vienna where the well-heeled paraded for the purpose of seeing and being seen. A girlish infatuation. To catch a glimpse of the crown prince, or better still, to be acknowledged by him, was the hope of every socially ambitious Viennese. A large number of them went to the Prater for the purpose alone. One of them was the 16-year-old Baroness Maria Vetsera, daughter of a minor Hungarian nobleman. As 16-year-olds will, Maria had developed a strong crush on Rudolf after seeing him at the races in Vienna in April of 1888. Rudolf, for his part, was sufficiently struck by Maria's beauty to stare at her for several seconds. This was quite enough to tend the impressionable young girl into a tizzy of adoration. Maria had numerous admirers and usually created avid no interest, but from that moment on, she could think of no one but the crown prince. To her, he was a shining knight, endowed with all the chivalrous virtues and an ideal man, pluperfect in every possible way. At this early stage, admiration from afar was all Maria wanted of the prince. Like any ardent fan, she quizzed her friends for tidbits of news on, about him, following his movements in the court circles and nagging her mother into taking her to the theater or opera, driving in the Prater, all in hopes of fueling her passion with a glimpse of her idol. Maria knew that she could never maintain entertain hopes of being formally introduced to Rudolf. She could not boast the lustrous ancestry that would have allowed her to present to be presented at court. Although her mother was acquainted with both the emperor and empress, the chance encounter was a far surer bet. In time, Maria's persistence paid off. Early in May 1888. A gala performance of William Shakespeare's Hamlet took place at Vienna's Berg Theater, and Maria discovered the crown prince was going to be there. Maria persuaded her mother to accompany her. Girls of Maria's class were not allowed to out without a chaperone, and there, in the first interval of the play, she came face to face with her idol for the first time. Rudolph's glance was openly admiring, and with it went a small smile that, Mar that made Maria blush furiously, embarrassed. She fled to a small room nearby. Later, the same evening, Maria caught the prince's eye again. A few days later, while prowling the Prater in her mother's carriage, she saw him once more as he rode past. He looked at her with evident interest, and on the return journey home, he rode past again and scrutinized her a second time. Maria was now hopelessly in love with Rudolph, but she had no axe to grind as far as she was concerned. All she wanted was the chance to adore her prince and dream delightful hours away thinking about him, though he did not know it yet. Rudolph had encountered the one and only person 
who sought nothing from him but the pleasure of his company. Maria mooned several months away in this ingenuous fashion until, in September 1888, the chance of a closer acquaintance came along. One morning, Maria's mother returned home from shopping with a friend, Countess Lariche, who was Rudolph's first cousin. The Countess, of course, had known the Crown Prince since childhood, and Maria lost no time pumping the visitors for details about him. Lariche, an astute woman of about 40 years old, did not did not take in long to realize the depth of Maria, Maria's ardor and took an early opportunity to let Rudolph know of his unknowing conquest. Rudolph, intrigued, wanted to know the name of his admirer, and being told at once recalled the delectable teenager with the dark hair and the ice-blue eyes who had caught his attention earlier in the season. Maria was almost delirious with joy when the countess afterwards brought her Rudolph's message of regard. Even so, she ha seems to have entered no thought as yet of the next step. An actual meeting with the prince. Instead, Maria returned to her previous strategy of the chance encounter. When the encounter occurred, however, Rudolph proved to be more forthcoming than Maria had ever dared hope. Riding in the Prater, he not only noticed her, but also gave her a small but unmistakable bow. A few days later, on the 21st of October, a letter reached Maria, which said all she had ever dreamt of, and more. In it, Rudolph invited her to meet him in the Prater the next day. He had admired her for so long. He wrote that now the time had come to make her acquaintance. Maria's reply told the crown prince a great deal more than it actually said. She could not come to the Prater, she told him, because she had no chaperone. This, to Rudolph, was something quite new. He was accustomed to sophisticated women whose approaches were blatant and who were far less concerned with him than with the status they would gain from knowing him. Yet, here was a girl with such a virginal sense of propriety that she would meet the heir of the throne only if she were accompanied. It was refreshing, even startling, and it came at a time when Rudolph badly needed just this sort of distraction. Recently, the crown prince had received some very disturbing news. His cousin John Salvador was not content merely to talk over liberal principles. He was planning nothing less than a revolution and the overthrow of Rudolph's father. John had even enlisted support in the Austrian army for this coup. Rudolph, who counted loyalty to his father's position as his priority, never mind their political differences, was both horrified and saddened. Talk of revolution had lost him his only friend, for John Salvatore had been the one person to whom he could talk frankly. Now, Rudolph began to doubt the strength of his beliefs. He could not contemplate treason against his father, and if he was content only to talk, not act, his ideals 
he felt they must be very shallow. Imperial spies were everywhere, and the fear that they might discover John Salvatore's plans and that he might be implicated were Rudolph's next depressing thoughts. He was, in any case, beginning to feel the strain of spending most of his time with reactionary opes at court and dealing with the tedious trivia of the vast bureaucracy that was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The strain showed the emperor had grown sufficiently alarmed at his son's pale face and gaunt appearance to have him examined by the imperial physician. He was diagnosed what might today be called executive stress and advised Rudolph to relax and rest. Rudolph's commitments made that impossible, but the young, innocent, and even childlike Maria Vetsera could prove to be the next best thing. As soon as he received Maria's reply, Rudolph wrote to the Countess Lariche, demanding that she return to Vienna forthwith and introduce him to Maria. Lariche hastened back to the capital and soon performed the task for which she had been summoned. Chaperoned by the Countess, Maria Vetsera came to the Hofburg, the Imperial Palace in Vienna, to come face to face with her hero. Both of them, it seems, found what they wanted in each other. To Maria's starry-eyed gaze, the prince was more handsome and more courteous than even she had imagined. As for Ruda, Maria was a beautiful delight, and her extreme youth, obvious sincerity, and modern charm were a wonder. Best of all, she was quite untarnished, either by the sordid political world Rudolph was forced to inhabit, or by the tedious social round that had, until now, been his only alternative. Susceptible, as he was at the time, the disillusioned, world-weary Rudolph fell madly in love and was soon planning to divorce his sour-tempered wife and marry Maria. Rudolph was well aware that he and Maria were being followed by palace agents. Whenever they met, and although he realized that this meant the liaison would soon reach the emperor's ears, he had become reckless enough not to care. All he cared about was Maria and the fact that he could not live without her. Rudolf and Maria Vetsero became lovers on the 13th of January, 1889, and the prince was so wrapped up in this, his first serious affair, that he gave Maria a ring inscribed with the date to commemorate the event. A sharp jolt back to reality was soon forthcoming by the 26th of January. The emperor had his possession a letter from Pope Leo the Thirteenth, which revealed that Rudolf had written directly to the pontiff, asking him to permit the dissolution of his marriage to Stephanie. Such a direct contact was a breach of protocol and told Franz Joseph that a liaison with Maria that had prompted the request was going to be a serious problem. A divorce from Stephanie was out of the question, no matter how unhappy the marriage was. The stability of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which relied on the united royal family, would not permit it. It was then that Rudolf realized just how much he was in his father's power, 
and how little courage he possessed to resist him. Franz Joseph summoned his son to appear before him and demanded a promise that Rudolph would send Maria away. Thoroughly dejected, the crown prince complied, asking only that he might see her just once more. Having got what he wanted, the emperor agreed, little realizing how shamed and hopeless his son felt as he left his presence. Two days later, the crown prince Rudolf left Vienna for Mailing, ostensibly for some midwinter hunting in the surrounding forest. Maria Vetsera was with him. On the afternoon of the 29th of January, the two of them took a long walk in the forest, and there, it seems, Rudolf proposed a suicide pact. To him, it was the only way out of what he saw as his meaningless life. The besotted Maria agreed. Most likely, she had no realistic concept of death, and doubtless thought only of herself and Rudolf mysteriously united in perpetuity beyond the grave. That night, both of them wrote letters to their mothers. Rudolf asked Empress Elizabeth to see that he and Maria were buried together in a small nearby cemetery at Allend. The, the request was never granted. That done, Rudolph bolted the door of the bedroom from the inside. Sometime around dawn, when Maria was asleep, he fetched his revolver from a drawer and shot her behind the left ear. The range was point blank, and she died instantly. Rudolph's manservant, Lotch, heard the noise. He leapt out of bed and rushed along the hallway to his master's room. The second shot rang out as he arrived, too late, outside the door. Vatican cover-up. In the 19th century, suicide was regarded as a sin in the eyes of the Catholic Church. Consequently, a big cover-up attempted to conceal the circumstances of Rudolph's death. Heart failure was the first official explanation. Then a story was disseminated that he had been killed by conservative elements fearful of his liberal influence. Next, the Vatican issued a statement that Rudolph had been mentally unbalanced when he died. No one was really convinced, and eventually, the truth had to be admitted. Crown Prince Rudolph and Maria Vetsever had died in a suicide pact. This, though, was not allowed to the end of the story. Conspiracy theories had always sprung up and were proliferating even before the truth about the deaths of Rudolph and Maria was reluctantly announced. Conspiracy theories never die and no official announcements, whether a cover-up or truth, had the slightest effect on any of the many explanations surrounding the hunting lodge at Mailing and the tragic events that happened there. Emperor Maximilian of Mexico The Archduke Maximilian, younger brother of Emperor Franz Joseph of, Hung of Austria-Hungary, 1832-1867, was the quote-unquote fall guy in a scheme hatched in 1863 by the French Emperor Napoleon III. The idea was for Maximilian to retrieve money owed to France by the, Mexi the Mexican government. 
Napoleon's allies in Mexico, the Catholic Church, and the group of wealthy landowners had also been disposed of their land, cash, and privileges by the liberal president of Mexico, Benito Juarez. They, too, wanted their money back. With this reluctant assent of Franz Joseph, the landowners offered Maximilian the Mexican throne. He accepted. So far, so good. But there was a problem. Maximilian was a naive, starry-eyed idealist with a head full of utopian notions about the banishing the poverty, squalor, and disease that disfigured life for millions of disadvantaged people in Mexico and around the world. Maximilian arrived in the empire in 1864, accompanied by a substantial force of French troops and his wife, Charlotte, daughter of the Belgian King Leopold I. Charlotte, too, had her heads in the cloud. To her, Maximilian was an angel whose destiny was to serve and uplift humanity. But for his sponsors, Napoleon III and Franz Joseph, Maximilian was a high-minded wimp who caused trouble from the start. He refused to stir to restore church property and privileges on the grounds that the church belonged to the people. For the same reasons, Maximilian declined to let landowners take back their lost estates and hiatuses. Next, Maximilian proceeded with utopian schemes such as a national theater for Mexico and their creation of a world navy. He took to walking through the streets of Mexico City with minimal escort engaging in friendly conversation with passerbys. He was so obviously genuine that even Benito Juarez and his supporters found it hard to dislike him. This did not mean that Juarez approved of Maximilian's assumption of power. Typically, on learning of Juarez's hostility, Maximilian invited him to Mexico City, thinking to offer the Mexican leader a place to his government. Juarez, of course, refused. Mayhem followed. Motley groups of bandits, some of them Juarez partisans, made the night and the roads dangerous. Juarez and his forces were still at large, awaiting for their chance to fight and defeat the foreign intruders. The Americans then stepped in with demands that the French leave Mexico and take Maximilian with them. Maximilian refused at first, but as an as American pressure increased, he began to waver. Charlotte refused to hear of giving up and sailed to Europe to seek help. She arrived in August 1866. But soon discovered that nobody wanted to know. Napoleon III was facing fresh pressure from a rampant Germany on France's east eastern frontier and needed his troops home. He was willing to abandon Maximilian in order to do so. Never very stable, Charlotte's mind gave away as fear, failure, and stress finally snapped her sanity. When Maximilian learned of her condition, his first thought was to be with her. His second was to remain in Mexico, where he believed deserting his subjects would be cowardly and dishonorable. The same applied to the abdication, which his brother urged him, urged on him. 
By January 1867, French troops had withdrawn from Mexico and the armies of Benito Juarez were sweeping towards Mexico City. Maximilian still refused to cut and run. The most he would do was leave for Quetero, northwest of Mexico City. He was still there when the Juarez forces arrived and captured him. Loath to execute him because he was so discouragingly, disconcertingly noble. The Mexicans tried persuading him to escape. Yet again, Maximilian refused. He seemed intent on martyrdom as the only honorable way out. All the Mexicans could do was to oblige. And on June 19, 1867, Maximilian was marched out of Quetero to the nearby hill of Bells. A firing squad awaited him. Taking a deep breath of the ice-fresh mountain air, Maximilian declared, What a glorious day. I have always wanted to die on such a day. Seconds later, he was dead. The news took ten days to reach Europe. Nine months passed before her family dared tell Charlotte what had happened. She survived her husband by forty years which she spent mumbling to herself and gazing at pictures of Maximilian or smashing anything breakable and ripping up carpets, curtains, and upholsteries in violent fury. She, she died, still hopelessly insane, in 1927. I'm not quite sure why this is added into here, but it is added into the Maryland tragedy, and I think it's just to prove actually, that there was insanity in this family. So yet again, Kings and Queens took far longer than I thought it would. After we talk about these events, I think it's important that we, we do our own research and get both sides to everything and see what everybody's saying on all sides. So yet again, I hope you learned a lot. And I will see you all again soon.